What'd you say? What'd you, you say? Get, you can't get good help since the war. Oh my god, shut up. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Hello everyone, this is Kevin Kimball. Callan. And this is Katie, and you are listening to episode 5 of Hot Rods of the Sky. everybody and thanks so much for listening. We're sorry this episode's a little bit delayed, but uh, Cal had uh, some trouble. He was a little sick, so we had to kind of postpone recording. We didn't want to do it without him. We're not going to go into the gory details, but yeah, had to hold off for a couple of days. Um, this week, well, in this episode, we're going to be talking about um, kind of a unique topic. We'll be chatting about the, quote, flying cigar, also known as the Lockheed Vega. Um, so this one is probably going to be two parts. Um, in this one, we're going to talk about the history of Lockheed, uh, kind of where they started, all that good stuff. Um, and then a little, about, little bit about the history of the Lockheed Vega itself. And then in the next episode, we're going to be chatting about um, the actual history of the Lockheed Vega that JKE Works is currently restoring, and then kind of a bit uh, of the information of the start of that restoration project. So as we know, Lockheed Martin, Lockheed specifically, is responsible for a ton of awesome aircraft. Uh, Callum, what's your favorite? SR-71. I mean, it's the fastest airplane on the planet. How about you, Dad? I'd say a P-38 is pretty cool. And obviously, oh, I kind of dig the Vega, too. Yeah. Well, I was going to choose All right, so I'll say Vega, Vega, and I'll say also the Lockheed Air Express. Uh, yeah, that's good. I was going to say either P-38 or um, the F-117. I just think it looks that cool. That funky thing? It's like a cool little thing. Yeah, I like it because it's funky. <laughs> It's cool. The P-38, mainly because of Glacier Girl. That was, like, one of my favorite things yeah. to go see at all the air shows. Still is, but... It was fun to go see it before um, it was at air shows. You saw it before... When did you see that? When I went to Kentucky to see it. 1995. You weren't there that year. Oh, well. That was the year you were bad. How do you remember? You were four. What are you, you talking You weren't there about? that year. You were, you were banished. You were banished. <laughs> I thought it was after that. I thought it was uh, after after the uh, whole GB Katie problem, her running away. I thought it was the next year, but maybe not. Pretty before all that, then. I ran away in two thousand five. Anyway, it wasn't yeah, that was just one of so, the times you ran away. Okay. Uh, okay. <laughs> um, before we really get into it, I just wanted to feature one of the books that I got a ton of this historical information about Lockheed from. Um, it is called Revolution in the Sky by Richard Sanders Allen, and um, it was a book that Dad just pulled down from the office and said, hey, you should check this out. I ended up spending a couple days just really combing through it and learning a lot of cool stuff. So if you're ever interested in more stuff, history, everything about Lockheed, definitely pick up that book. Um, yeah, definitely the early years of Lockheed, for sure. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. That's pretty cool. So, which now has put me in a fun position where I knew I know a good amount of stuff that um, Callan and Dad don't know. So, um, haha, I've never felt this way before. So, well, you're the only one that likes um, to read in that of the three of us. So, 
Exactly. Yeah, you guys saw all the pictures, which it does have fantastic pictures, but also, like, really good info in there. It's like a Lockheed history book. All right, without further ado, uh, let's get started. So our story this week for Lockheed history starts in 1889, so we're bringing it all the way back. Um, Alan Haynes Lockheed, which is spelled L-O-U-G-H-E-A-D, kind of like Lockheed. Um, he was born in 1889, and he grew up on a ranch with his mom and two brothers. Um, in 1910, he was able to serve as a co-pilot in a homemade airplane in Chicago. Um, this flight was actually the first ever, well, one of the first recorded dual-controlled flights in aviation history. So that was a pretty good nugget um, that I saw in there. Alan and his brother Malcolm spent a year and a half working out of a small garage during their free time to, desi to design and build the Lockheed Model G. Um, now, before we started recording, I was like, oh, Callan, you can talk about the Model G. And, uh, Callan, what do you know about the Model Absolutely G? Absolutely nothing. I never even heard of it. See? <laughs> I just wanted him to say that because I actually know, like, four things about it. Um, so, uh, the Model G was an amphibious biplane. Uh, the upper wing spread was 46 feet, and it had a triangular fuselage that was about 30 feet long. Um, it had mid-wing ailerons and a tail that swung on a universal joint. I have to be honest with you, I don't know what that means and how it changes, but it seemed interesting enough yeah. to mention twice in the book, so here we go. Did you find a picture of it? Um, yeah, they have like 40 pictures in this book. Really? We'll put a lot, well, I'll um, put a bunch of them on the, um, yeah. Of the G? I'll put, here, I'll show you. But I'll, yeah, I'll put a That's bunch cool. of them, um... You know, in the blog as well. But there are a ton of pictures of it. Um, it's actually, it's really cool. It's a small, little amphibious biplane. Um, but little, it originally had a... Mm -hmm, little little two-winger. Uh, had a Kirkham six-cylinder engine. Um, and it burst its crankcase, whatever that means, after about 15 <laughs> minutes. So it did not last long. <laughs> what does that mean? It blew up. <laughs> Oh, cool. Awesome. Uh, so they replaced it with an 80-horsepower water-cooled Curtis V8 power plant. So uh, that one did not explode after 15 minutes. Um, but yeah, that was their first stab at, uh, you know, engineering and building and creating all that stuff. And then uh, after that, uh, be I believe it was after World War One, they decided to design the S1. And... Dad, do you, how much you want to take over as the S one? Yeah, the the S one was really where they developed the the techniques for the molded plywood skin. Um, you know, patented that that particular process. Um, I think Northrop was working with them at that time too. Um, it was a small biplane, a little small radial engine powered single place open cockpit biplane, but it had the that cigar tube kind of molded fuselage structure uh, and there's some photos that are out there and it certainly would be in the book here of just two guys holding it up and you can see how tiny it really is it's um it's pretty small but it, it kind of is how they developed their technique the process for the design of that monocoque wood structure um, i always felt that probably because it's post-world war ii i mean post-world war one they saw what some of the 
European molded wood airplane structures were being made and kind of took some inspiration at least from that. Um, and you know, when you look at it, in some cases, it's uh, it's definitely that way because you know, on the Vega, for example, the thicknesses of the laminations of the skin are, and the drawings are dimensioned in in inches, but when you actually convert it over, because it's weird numbers, it's one millimeter, two millimeters, one millimeter, numbers like that. So I think they were actually <laughs> pretty well, you know, I plagiarizing almost on what was going on there, uh, on how to do that wood structure. Uh, I think it was pretty cool that they did it. Um, and I think they only built one of those, maybe, I think. Um, yeah, I, I do know that, um, well, from the book, they actually went bankrupt after it because the, the whole goal was to get, you know, normal people to be able to, you know, get into aviation and fly the plane. Their whole goal was to have, you know, every driveway or house has one of these. Yeah. Um, yeah, Everybody exactly. Like the poor man's biplane. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Uh, some people, somebody sent me some pictures recently that showed a picture of um, someone standing by some concrete molds and they said, oh, the, here's the Vega molds. And I said, mm, no, I think that's the S1 molds because it's really tiny. Uh, those molds would fit inside the Vega mold. So, yeah, anyway. So after, um, you know, the the S1 was a cool little airplane, but um, they dumped a ton of money into it, and then, you know, the trusty old Great Depression decided to take over, and they did not sell any of them. So um, Lockheed closed its doors in, in 21, Um, but Alan Lockheed and Jack Northrup, the engineer that was working, um, with Lockheed before it closed its doors, they never really, um, lost the, the bug for it and they wanted to design another airplane. They all went their separate ways and, you know, got jobs different places. Um, I don't remember where Jack Northrup got, went to work, but anyway, so, um, they kind of brought it back together and, and decided to make to design a, a new airplane uh, called the Vega. And according to the book, Northrop was the one that suggested the name for Vega because it kind of, um, it, it kind of gave you the idea of speed. That was kind of the whole point, is to be, you know, really fast. So um, kind of around the time that they were designing and, and building the new plane, James D. Doyle, head of the Hawaiian Pineapple Company, and if you've ever been to Disney or if you're an ice cream fan, uh, did I say Doyle? I'm so sorry, it's Dole. You just said Doyle. Dole. I know what I said. I know what I said. I meant Dole. Um, just like the Dole Whip. Um, if you've ever had one of those. I actually hate pineapples, but I do like Dole Whip. Super good. Anyway, that guy. Um... He offered $25,000 to the first person that could fly from North America to Honolulu. Um, so, you know, everybody was kind of jumping in on that. And this was after, uh, oh my god, I totally, I totally had a brain fart. What is, um, I'm wait, so I want to sit here and, and wait for you to, to struggle with this for a little bit before I tell okay. you the answer. Um, his 
baby got kidnapped and Lindbergh. Okay, the Lindbergh baby. All right, there you I gotta go. figure that one out. There it is. Charles Lindbergh, um, as we talked about in one of the first GB episodes, when he did not fly around the world, which is what I said before, but I was totally wrong. When he crossed the Atlantic and landed in Paris, that was the whole start of the golden age of aviation. So uh, Mr. Dole, Mr. Pineapple, wanted to get, you know, his own people excited about it so he wanted to get his own little prize and race going so uh, he offered the 25 grand which you know in the 20s and 30s is a crap ton of money so um i don't know the actual exchange rate but whatever so george hurst jr actually purchased the first lockheed vega before it was even finished he was like i want this and i want to use it for what was then called the pineapple derby it's like i want a dog in this race this is going to be awesome. I want that 25 grand and bragging rights to say that he won. Uh, he bought it for $12,000. So, and Lockheed and Northrop both knew that that was going to be kind of a low ball price, but they were totally okay with it because of the recognition and the advertising they would get from entering into it into the race. So that once the, the sale was actually set up to go to um, Hearst, you know, for twelve grand, which is half the prize money. So, you know, no matter what, he was standing up. If it worked out, he was going to make some money. Um, I think it was on July 4th and 27 when they flew the first prototype Vega. And, um, you know, that was what, like six weeks before the, the Pineapple Derby was supposed to happen. So it was pretty yeah. short order and not a whole lot of time to test it and make sure everything was going to work. Um and then the, the pilots that were chosen for that were Jack Frost and Gordon Scott. And um, I think the airplane held like 360 gallons of fuel. So that there it meant it was mostly in the fuselage where the passengers would normally be in the future. Filled up with gas and the airplane was named Golden Eagle and it headed off across the Pacific. And everybody waved goodbye and that was it. <laughs> Nobody ever saw it again. Yeah, never came back. <laughs> Right. And it really, I right. think there's a lot, I mean, going through the book, there's a lot of, as with um, many airplanes back then that just, you know, crashed in the middle of the ocean, there's a, a lot of guesses, you know, and, oh, they ran out of gas, or, oh, they overshot it, or they, but there's really no way to definitively know, like, they couldn't, yeah. you know, really... Yeah, we didn't just, have satellites to tell them what, how that the weather was going to be good or bad. I mean, they could have just flown in some exactly. nasty weather, and that was the reason that it never came back. Just think of like the the compass yeah. and the navigation stuff. If you're off, if the compass is out of calibration by a degree, you're missing Honolulu, Hawaii at all by hundreds of miles probably. It's yeah. major. It's, just, it's not like you're going to hit another mass of land. It's just like spot. Oh, where'd it go? Oh, never found it. Yeah. Down we go. Mm-hmm. Terrifying. Yeah. I it almost yeah. it reminds me a little bit. I don't, you remember Dinotopia? Mm-hmm. Remember when they're, like, flying, uh, the two brothers are flying with the dad, and and they're, like, going, and then they hit bad weather, and they crash, and they end up on this island full of dinosaurs? Yeah. That's, a, like, as I was reading this, I was like, oh, my God. Like, you yeah. know, so, you know, they just get thrown off course. But, um, yeah, that was, you know, nobody really ever, nobody will ever know and what exactly happened. Well, even with but... Amelia's flight, she had other radio stuff on board to talk to ships throughout her thing and to help her stay on course. It wasn't just she took off and went a direction. 
she had other checkpoints and stuff. Yeah, she was. She had his CB radio or ham radio or whatever was in the in the airplane talking to ships the whole way. And that's it wasn't that's really just her. Which was what's kind of cool is that then you had so many of these early Lockheeds being used for record setting events or exploration, things like that. You yeah. know, like flying to the North Pole, um, Winnie Mae, you know, with, with um, uh, Wiley Post, you know, doing it, all the, the fantastic flights that he did around the world and stratosphere and just so many things and pushing the, the boundaries of people, um, also the, the machines. Uh, these yeah. things force the machines to get better, engines to get better, communications to get better. You know, the invention of the first pressure suit to be able to go to 50,000 feet. All these things were were major, major accomplishments that were done with these early Lockheed airplanes. Um, by, by just, not by Lockheed, but by individuals who would buy the airplanes or have sponsors buy the airplanes and do these fantastic feats. The so it really pushed there. aviation. The airplanes were strong enough and sturdy enough to to do this stuff. It wasn't a, a model four. It's fabric, and you know, it couldn't take the beating. The Vega could take a beating, which is pretty amazing. I think the cool thing that is too is that it, um, it, you know, the first rather publicized, you know, whatever publicizement at that time, but the first flight, the first big showing of the Vega, you know took off and then, you know, obviously didn't go so great. And, you know, while, while I was reading, I was like, oh, I wonder if that's really going to tank, you know, the orders coming in or whatever. But it really didn't, you know, like people, that was just kind of the name of the game back then, I guess, you know, it was, it was a dangerous flight path that they were going, you know, it didn't really hinder them sales wise. And you know, it was a great plane and people really didn't go, Ooh, that didn't work out well. Let's buy something else, yeah. you know? So I thought that was that was pretty cool. And they started racking up quite a bit of orders. Like, they had to um, move to a bigger warehouse and try and keep up with, with all that stuff. And then, of course, Amelia Earhart, not our dog Amelia Earhart, but Amelia Earhart, the famed pilot, um, set two of her aviation records in um, her Lockheed 5B, right? 5B Vega? I don't know. I typed B, but that might not be the correct one. Um, That's correct. And in 1932, she flew it all by herself across the Atlantic Ocean, uh, non- and wait, across the Atlantic Ocean, obviously non-stop. Well, can we hold on just a second right there? You know, with, with that flight across the Atlantic Ocean, I think it's pretty important to think about it's five years after Lindbergh did it. Only five years, and now she's doing you know she's doing it, and she did it in less than half the time. So, yeah. you know, he was thirty what thirty three hours and change, and she did it in fifteen hours or something like that. So maybe it's not exactly the same course, but the the idea that in five years, basically halved the time it took to get across the the, the ocean that would have been you know previously just traveled by by an ocean liner. Boat. So it's <laughs> Pretty significant change, yeah. I think yeah. that's the cool part about this time in aviation in general is just the how how fast things are changing. I mean, if you just do the math, like people have only been flying for you know thirty, you know, less than thirty years in, in gen- like ever <laughs> in the history of humankind, right. and then it's just 
record after record and growth after growth after growth. And it's just, uh, for me, it's just terrifying. And it just takes a special kind of, you know, group of people to push things and try things and, you know, the, but it just, yeah, they had to believe in the machines themselves, you know, just, and just have that leap of faith that what they, what they knew in their head was going to happen would get done. And, you know, you just, there's people that do that. There's people that, you know, the, it went on for generations and that's how we ended up going to places in space and, and actually just putting even pieces of hardware in space. But to me, in this particular time, the advancements that were happening with aviation and flight in general were at, you know, you know, each year, like you're, 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 you're going half again faster or half again farther or twice as far, you know, big, big monumental steps that, you know, it's, it's almost as though there's a, you know, it's, it's an exponential curve, you know, decay to where it was really vertical and, and a lot of advancement was happening in a hurry. And then as time went on, you know, the curve is flattening out. And, it's, and you know, since since we first went to the moon, we haven't figured out how to go to the moon twice as fast. Yeah, It's still about the same amount of time to get to the moon. So there's little things like that, that, that when you look at it as a, as a scope of change during this particular period in time and in flight, the change was rapid and it was changes in the equipment, the people, the capabilities, and then what you could do with this technology was, um, was pretty mind blowing. <laughs> and you were talking about promotional. I mean, she was well promoted because you know her husband was a you know um, promoter guy, right? Wasn't it? Wasn't that his deal? Publicist, yes. So you know, that's there's there's a lot of we talked before. There were a lot of female aviators that had fantastic and and amazing accomplishments during the same time period, but they just didn't get the press. Um, yeah. But she did do some pretty amazing things and and partnered with some wonderful manufacturers like Lockheed and were able to do these things. So it's pretty neat. Well, and I think it was around the time um, because, you know, Lockheed is spelled, like we said before, like Loughhead and people were mispronouncing it. And I and when they tried again with the Vega after they had gone bankrupt in 21, you know, it was the book didn't say exactly when that change happened, but it, I think it was around the time that the Vega, you know, started to pick up a little bit that they actually changed the spelling to lock, L-O-C-K, you know, the, the normal, like how you would pronounce it, the phonetic spelling or whatever it's called, you know, because I mean, yeah, me yeah. looking at it, I'd still today pronounce it wrong. So, <laughs> but mm-hmm. yeah, I thought that was a, a curious thing that I know I like the random facts for whenever they decided to spell it different, but it didn't say exactly. But around that time, you know, late twenties or so was when they decided to uh, spell it the way that people would pronounce it, <laughs> which makes a lot more sense. And well, then, um, and then there, that's, there's there's another example of what they were doing in the time is you know they weren't hard fast on their name being historically correct. They wanted to make sure that that their customers and industry would understand who they are. And if you were going to say, oh yeah, I have a Lockheed and the, but it's spelled Loghead. Do you even know that that's the same airplane uh, or the same yeah. product? So, I mean, exactly. from a, from a 
you know, a marketing and get out there and everybody know who you are standpoint, it was pretty smart to go ahead and, and go with that phonetic spelling and create something that became now is, is, you know, one of the most renowned names in, in the world of, you know, machines, aviation, aviation space, whatever, you know, so, yeah. so many things, you know. Well, and in the, the book Revolution in the Sky uh, that I got a lot of this information from, um, the, the opening of it starts with a little boy watching all of these planes come in and he's he's got like a few people next to him and he's just going crazy about him he's going you see those those are wacos and those are this those are that and oh you can hear it here comes the lockheeds you know so just like you were saying people being able to pronounce it and kids being big fans of it like it was you know a big deal from a marketing standpoint and uh, yeah so amelia's first vega was the 5b in 1930, the little red bus, and then after that, she which one did she have, Cal? She it was. It was still she painted it red. It just it was another one. It wasn't like another name. I know, but it was a different was model, just, right? I think it was a. The first five, one was a five C. A few years later. That's the one that's in the Smithsonian. The first one was a, I think what was it, a two, the Vega two, right, Dad? And then they converted it to a five five yeah. or whatever. Yeah, I mean. They all were converted at some point because they wanted bigger motors on them. So it was just put the big block in kind of thing. Um, <laughs> but she, I mean, she wrecked it and needed a new airplane. So she bought another airplane and that, and most of the records were in the second airplane, I think. That's pretty oh, early on that she wrecked that. it. Yeah. And then the the one that's in the museum now in the Smithsonian, you know, it was originally, um, it went to the Franklin Institute, I believe, after... After her records, you know, she went across the Atlantic and then she did the North American cross country um, deal, you know, from uh, L.A. to New York and did that one. And then um, then it was donated. I mean, it was, it was funny on a lot of these trips, like when it went across the ocean, then it came back on a ship. You know, it flew it flew over there, but then they <laughs> shipped funny. it back on a boat. And then, yeah, there's pictures the of that you know, lifting up <laughs> onto the ship. Yeah. Well, there was a lot of things that were, it was, it was easier to go west to east, yeah, you know, so that like LA to New York, you know, yeah, it's, it, it's the easiest way to go. So it's harder to go from, from the, the west, I mean, from the east to the west. You yeah. You just jump up and wait for the world to spin and then land again. Right. So, yeah. um, <laughs> yeah. in this, you know, in this particular case, it was, um, uh, still a, a west to east kind of a deal, and then we we know of some other airplanes that later there were some derbies that were actually the other way, and it was quite difficult even on the continental U.S. to to get it done. Um, there was a one race that was from east to west, and I think eight airplanes of all different types were entered, and none of them made it. It was just kind of a bad a bad deal, but um, in any event, so her airplane ended up in. Uh, the Franklin Institute, and then later in the Smithsonian in the '60s, I think it's went ended up in the Smithsonian, and it's um it's really a pretty neat, um, historically accurate, preserved airplane. We have quite a few photographs inside and out and around of it that really help us on our project, and um, it's it's pretty neat that for the most part it's untouched um, in all those years, it's been repainted and things, but. Well, and I pretty, think from like a historical point of view, I mean, Lockheed only had, let's 
let's call it, there's probably some more designs in between, but three notable plane, the two notable planes before the Vega. So you had the Model G, the S1, and then the Vega. And, you know, coming from, I don't know, I feel like that's that's a pretty good record to just kind of shoot your shot, and then they created a, a an amazing aircraft in the Vega to where it was, you know, this profound with all the explorers and record setters and, you know, and when you see the, how massive this plane is, I, until the other day, I didn't realize this was initially made for speed. It looks huge. When I think speed, I think the GB, you know, little, very, you know, but this thing is you know, it took you guys like an hour and a half just to get the wing to fit in the hangar. Like it's, it, it was not, I didn't, I wasn't thinking speed at all when this, before I read this book. So I mean, like Lockheed and and Jack Northup, of course, and and everybody else involved, you know, was, I mean, it's not luck. It's all ingenuity and stuff, but. There was a, there was a heck of a team that were assembled there. I mean, the Lockheed brothers, you had Jack Northup, who later went on to have the Northrop Aircraft Company and then, you know, on and on and on down into history. And now there's there's Northrop Grumman, which are two companies that have since merged. But um, you also had names like uh, Jerry Volte was there. You had, um, which later was Volte Aircraft in War II and beyond. And then you had um, Richard Palmer, who was there and later ended up going to work for Hughes and helped design the Hughes Racer. So there's just a a lot of really, really talented people that were assembled into, you know, almost like a dream team of the day to be able to put these, this pretty awesome design together. And then they didn't just st- stop with the Vega. You had the Vega. There were actually four, three different airplanes or designs that Lockheed called a Vega, the Vega one model one, the model two was called a Vega. And then the model five was called a Vega. So, there were originally eight different designs, one through nine, skipping six for some reason, but one, two, and five were Vegas. Three is the Air Express. Four is the Explorer. Seven was an Explorer. Eight is the, the Sirius and Altair. And nine is the Orion. And all of these designs were built with the same basic components. So the same fuselage shells, diaphragms in the fuselage, wing ribs, but it might be a high wing airplane or a low wing airplane or uh, in the case of the Air Express, parasol wing with an open cockpit. So there were different configurations they built using these construction and basic design techniques to satisfy certain needs. Um, so they're, they're pretty cool in how they were able to do that. And then um, so that covers you know, the first basically nine designs by Lockheed. Uh, and they're all made from these same basic components. Um, well, and I think for, uh, you know, just for this part one of this, we really wanted to cover, you know, the very short history of Lockheed before it started uh, producing Vegas. Um, and next week we're going to be talking about the history of the Vega that is currently sitting in the hangar at JKE Works and the first few years of the restoration process for that Vega. Um, I got to be pretty talkative this week because I did a lot of reading and I felt smart. Next week I'm going to go back to uh, feeling um, dumb and not knowing anything, so I cannot wait for that. But I'm reveling as much in this week as I can. Um, 
And just a short note, you know, we'd never uh, want to, you know, mention anything in a political sense or anything at all, but we did want to feature one of um, our our friends over at Aircraft Studio Design, uh, Mirko, Simone, and Federica Pecorari. They are doing a really cool project uh, where they're selling merch. They have um, a cool design for the ghost of Kiev. Is it Kiev or Kiev or... I don't know if I pronounce it wrong. I'm sorry, but um, it's a really cool design. They've got it on hoodies, shirts, cups, everything. If there's something that you want that design on that's not in the shop, email them and let them know. We're going to put the link in the show notes here. 100% of the profits from the sale of this is actually going to help uh, people. They they know of some people that are actually in the Ukraine right now, um, but it's going directly to help those people. So if you have some spare change and you want a really cool shirt and design merch, um, definitely click that link that we'll have in the show notes um, and just check them out. We're also going to share it on our Facebook as well. Um, like we said, 100% of it goes to, to help other people and uh, once again, thank you guys so much for hanging out with us. Uh, we're trying to make the episodes a little bit shorter, easier to digest. Um, thanks for listening to part one of this series. Next week we'll hit part two. And then after that, we're going to have um, a really fun guest. We'll dive back into the GB. So thank you guys so much and have a great week. Thank you. Thanks for listening. See you next time.